Last week, Alabama's all-conservative Supreme Court ruled that embryos stored for use in in vitro fertilization are children. This decision revived the debate over reproductive rights, and even Republicans are divided over the absurdity of the decision to call embryos children. IVF clinics in Alabama have started to close down, and the right to plan a family and a life are once again under attack. What does this decision reveal about the basic logic and the motivation behind these attacks on individual rights? Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Agustina Vergara Cid, and with me is Ben Bayer. So Ben, let's uh, jump right in, because we have a lot to discuss today. So this decision came out last week, Ben. So it, we see a lot of the media talking about it, a lot of people talking about it. But uh, can you tell us what the facts of the case are and what did the Alabama Supreme Court decide? Yes, well, the, the case concerns a rather curious incident that now it turns out has uh, momentous implications. Uh, there were a pair of couples in Alabama who were undergoing in vitro fertilization. They had a number of their embryos frozen, which is pretty typical for what this process involves. The frozen embryos are stored in a freezer at a hospital, uh, and some patient uh, at the hospital who uh, was up to no good broke into the laboratory uh, and uh, played around with the frozen embryos that were in test tubes because they were very cold. The patient dropped them. They uh, therefore uh, were destroyed. And the parents of these embryos understandably were upset at the loss of uh, their, their embryos. Uh, but wanted to be able to hold someone accountable and to sue for monetary damages uh, against the clinic that had administered this process and had failed to adequately protect uh, the, the embryos. Um, now, as it turns out, in Alabama, uh, there is, there, there's a law in the books from 1872, the wrongful death of a minor statute, which allows a, uh, a family member a relative of a, someone who dies, a dead minor, a child, uh, to sue for damages. And the uh, Alabama Supreme Court in this case ruled eight to one in favor of the plaintiff who wanted to be able to sue this clinic, um, the Center for Reproductive Medicine in Alabama. And the, uh, the court cited that 1872 law, uh, which says you can sue for damages upon the death of a minor child. Now that law did not define a minor child, but the Supreme Court cited some previous rulings of its own from 2011 and 2012, declaring that a, an unborn child is a minor child. And incidentally, this is the point that none of the parties to this dispute call into question. This is Alabama, after all, a heavily uh, conservative and religious state. And, uh, heavily anti-abortion. And so nobody in this dispute, not even the defendants, wants to challenge the idea that unborn children are uh, actually, that, that, un that an unborn embryo or fetus is actually a child. Uh, they then, of course, take consolation in the fact that Dobbs versus Jackson overturned uh, the right to abortion, which uh, had challenging implications for that assumption. Uh, the the one question 
that was in dispute is whether a embryo, a frozen embryo that is outside of the woman's womb counts as an unborn child for the sake of this uh, death of a minor statute. And of course, the people who put the law on the books in 1872 didn't know anything about in vitro fertilization, didn't anticipate the possibility of an in vitro embryo. Um, but the justices writing the majority decision argued if there's any ambiguity at all uh, that comes from that fact, then they think that the current Alabama constitution, which was adopted only in 2022, which says that the public policy of Alabama will protect the rights of the unborn uh, in every possible manifestation, including in vitro, outside of the womb, that should resolve the ambiguity in their view. And that's why they uh, came down eight to one in favor of the plaintiff, declaring that even frozen embryos outside of the womb count as children. Augustina, you, you're muted. I can't hear you right now. Oh, sorry. I think that it should be fixed now. So the defendant does not question then that uh, children include the unborn, right? But they claim that there should be an exception to Alabama's wrongful death of a child statute for children, quote, meaning embryos, that are not physically in utero. So if you're not questioning that embryos are children in utero, what is the logic of the proposed exception and what did specifically the court say about this exception that the defendant wanted to, uh, to have? So I should say that technically the defendants weren't characterizing what they were asking for as an exception. They were arguing that the original 1872 statute didn't include uh, in vitro embryos to begin with. And so they were arguing that it hadn't been expanded to include that. Now, the court characterizes what they're asking for as an exception, because the court says the language that we have is completely and fully general, um, especially when you take into account this 2022 Alabama Constitution that says we'll protect the rights of the unborn in an unqualified way. So the court sees it as an exception. And the reason the court doesn't think there should be an exception is first just the the way they put it is the plain letter of the law, uh, the black letter law says unqualifiedly unborn children doesn't specify their location. Um, but they also think that allowing for exceptions would have uh, strange consequences. They think that it would mean that there could be no claim against partial birth abortions because the, uh, someone, the, the entity that's undergoing a partial birth abortion would not be fully born and yet would be partially uh, ex utero, uh, but they they make much bigger deal about what happens in a kind of sci-fi hypothetical situation where uh, you let's say had in vitro fertilization and then through some kind of artificial womb technology were actually able to grow uh, the fetus to term, in which case it would never have been born, so it's unborn, but it's also in vitro, and then they think there could be no sanctions against killing such an entity in that case too, and that, that worries them. And a lot of the debate was about whether it made sense to raise this sci-fi, because uh, it is just sci-fi uh, hypothetical. But for one reason or another, they didn't see grounds for what they saw as an exception, and that's why they dismissed the arguments of the defendant. Okay, so part of what the defendant claims uh, in the 
what we read that the defendant claim is that not carving out this exception, or I guess considering um, in vitro embryos children would lead to a cost increase in IVF in Alabama and make cryogenic preservation extremely expensive for the families that wish to go through that. So what is the court's response to this assertion that is just essentially kind of like bad policy? And before I mention what the response is, I think it's worth pointing out that this is a this is a pretty important issue that and, and it's it's unlike the sci-fi hypothetical that the court is really is worried, worried about. Um, this is a very real world consequence, the uh, evidence of which we are already beginning to see. Um, there are already IVF clinics in Alabama closing down because of that patients losing access to the treatment that they're already pursuing. Um, we're talking about patients who have fertility problems, who need fertility treatments if they want to have children. Uh, and we're also starting to see cascading effects of this in other states uh, where there are anti-abortion laws on the books, where there's the worry that similar kind of decisions could come down from the courts based on those laws in these other states. And so here in Texas, for instance, where there's no abortion permitted from conception, uh, I've already read stories about uh, about women who are currently undergoing fertility treatments who are talking about moving their embryos out of state just so that they don't have to deal with this possibility when and if it happens. So it's a, this is a serious concern. Uh, what is the court's response to this? Because, of course, this is one of the major arguments that the defendants are making against, against this uh, plaintiff's case, that this is what's going to happen. It's going to have a chilling effect on IVF treatment. And the court basically says uh, that might be true for all we know, but we're not the legislature. That isn't our job to deal with. If the legislature made a mistake in adopting these laws that led to this outcome, then the legislature should change the law. But as the judiciary, we're here just to interpret the law. And what the, what the law says, for, for all they can tell, they say, is that, in fact, these frozen embryos do count as children. And therefore, uh, uh, there can be people who there can be clinics who are sued for wrongful death of any embryos, which for whatever reason, malicious or accidental, end up being damaged because of the treatment process. So the result of this decision, uh, to me, seems absurd, claiming that cryogenically preserved embryos are actually children. And like, like you just said, the, the very concrete consequences of, of the decision are very clearly unfair, unjust, and very severe. So is this a failure in the logic of the anti-abortion uh, arguments, or is it a logical consequence of the anti-abortion position? Well, in one sense, it's, it's very logical. In another sense, it's not. Uh, in the sense of simply looking at what are the logical implications of the premises of not only the laws in question, but of the anti-abortion movement that put these laws on the book, I would say this is an extremely logical argument that the Supreme Court is making. They're saying, look, uh, by the standards of the anti-abortion position, these count as children, and there's no reason for seeing the exception to that. And if you look at the arguments that the anti-abortion movement makes on this subject, uh, they're right. The, the argument that is always given is, uh, being a human being is something that begins at conception. Once you've got a full set of 46 chromosomes that are human DNA, 
uh, once you've got the potential to become a human being, that's all that it takes to be a human being. Um, that's been the philosophical anti-abortion position uh, for decades now. And that doesn't mention anything about whether uh, the embryo in question is in the uterus or out of the uterus. It's still got the same biochemistry in either case, and it's still got the same potential. Of course, that potential isn't being in any way moved forward when it's a frozen embryo, uh, but that was never part of the philosophical rationalization for this view in the first place. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's very logical. Um, I would say, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the, the, the sense in which it's not logical uh, in a moment, I think. But one thing that I do think it shows that when you, so this is the, as we put in the title of this episode, this is the dead end of anti-abortion logic. There's, there's really no way to block that logical inference, uh, especially from the laws that are on the books. Um, and so it does show, I think, that the, it shows you something about the actual motivation of the people who are working from these premises. Because here's a case where the logic has the consequence of actually stopping people who want to have children, who are choosing to have children, from pursuing that end. And so I think it really gives the lie to the idea that what these people really care about is child rearing and they, they care about uh, compassion for, for children and for parents who want to have children. I, I think it shows, especially when there's this unflinching willingness to embrace these logical consequences legally, uh, that the motivation is a lot more nihilistic. It's a lot more about opposition uh, to certain kinds of values than it is about the promotion of certain kinds of values. It's opposition to individual freedom. It's opposition to the pursuit of happiness. It's opposition uh, to the joy of sex. And uh, there's a lot more to say about that, but um, that's, I, I think this really is I'll say for some time, I wasn't sure if we were going to comment on this, this case, because I thought all we could say about it was, well, it's bad. Uh, but then I realized, especially when we're talking about sacrificing not only women's freedom, but the freedom of parents to pursue this medical treatment, this is really the reductio ad absurdum of uh, the anti-abortion position. That, that these frozen embryos, not even embryos that are in utero, but frozen embryos that are little pieces of ice have some kind of rights that are worth protecting at the expense of sacrificing uh, the rights of so many actual human beings. Yes. Um, it's interesting to me that it, it's also, I think, shows a motive. Part of the motivation is like the, the view of women in society and their role in society. But you said that um, part of the, so this has been, this is the logic taken to kind of like a, a further consequence, right? This is the logic of the anti-abortion position. So, so that tells me that this has to be uh, following the logic of, of the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court decision that uh, made it so abortion rights are no longer protected at the federal level. So is this a consequence of, of Dobbs? How, how does Dobbs play into this decision? Sure. Well, the major issue is that if if Dobbs had not happened, if Roe v. Wade had still been on the books, uh, then the right to abortion would have been protected up and up until at least the second trimester 
uh, even in Alabama, and none of the laws that are on the books counting uh, unborn children as children would be constitutional, would be enforceable for the purpose of this other issue that has nothing to do with abortion ostensibly, but is still legally connected to it. Um, but I do want to, I mean, use this as an opportunity to say now more about what is illogical about this outcome. And I think by extension, what's illogical about the Dobbs decision, because as I said, I said previously, there's a sense in which it's logical. It's unpacking the implications of these anti-abortion premises. But when, when you have consequences of premises that are absurd, that should lead you to think, well, maybe something is wrong with those premises. Maybe there's something wrong with the way that Dobbs interpreted the constitution to uh, be consistent with those kinds of premises. And the, the argument of the court and the argument of the plaintiffs in this case that nobody disputes in the Alabama case is that if it is a, is that conception makes something a human being, which you can only think if you think that having human DNA is not only necessary, but sufficient to make you a human being with rights. And that's just obviously false. The fact that you have DNA means that you belong biologically to a certain species. Uh, a human embryo is not a cat embryo. It's not a crocodile embryo, uh, but that just tells you biological species. It doesn't tell you that you're an individual human being with rights. There's a difference between a potential human being and an actual human being. Just like there's a difference between an acorn and an oak, to use the classic analogy. Uh, an acorn is not actually an oak tree, even though it has the potential to become one. Uh, what makes you an actual human being, and this is, the, this is the view that Ayn Rand held, and we'll give some resources later at the end of the episode on um, evidence that this is the view that she held. But what makes you a human being is being born as a human being. That's when you begin to acquire rights. Uh, the sense of humanity that matters for the sake of the question of rights, and the question of rights is what matters in the abortion debate. When does an entity acquire rights that can be violated? When does an entity acquire a right to life? The sense of humanity that matters for that is the sense of being an individual human being, because the right to life is an individual right. It only it only arises when you are now talking about an individual human being. It's your ability to act independently from other people in a social context. That's the ability that rights protect. Rights protect the ability to act freely. They protect the ability to, uh, for one individual to go their separate ways from others when they disagree, where there's no possibility of going your separate ways because you are biologically, physiologically fused uh, to another being. There can be no such question as having the individual freedom to go your separate way. There can be no question of having such things as rights. The paradigm of individual rights are things like uh, the right to free speech, the right to freedom of association, the right to freedom of religion, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the kinds of individual rights that are enshrined in our nation's founding documents, the Declaration of Independence and the, and the Bill of the Rights to the Constitution. These are the kinds of rights that apply first and foremost, to adult, actual, mature human beings. The, that's your paradigm case of individuals with rights. And 
a frozen embryo is so far from that as to render the notion that it has rights completely absurd. Jefferson and Madison weren't thinking about biochemistry uh, when they thought about what were the conditions necessary for rights. They were thinking about uh, independent agents living in a social context who needed to have spheres of protection around them to guide their independent action. So, like I said, in, in, in one sense, uh, the Alabama Supreme Court decision is supremely logical in that it shows a consequence of a, a flawlessly logical consequence of a certain set of premises. But that's what we call in logic a reductio ad absurdum. It's showing that those premises are completely absurd. Uh, Augustine, one thing I wanted to do at this point was to take a look at a brief snippet um, from the actual oral arguments that happened uh, in this case back in September. Um, because most, like, like I mentioned, no parties in this, in this case wanted dis to dispute the idea that a unborn embryo is a child. But there was one moment in these oral arguments where the, this philosophical issue was broached at least halfway. And it came when uh, an attorney who was representing the Alabama Medical Association was speaking on behalf of the defendants explaining why he didn't think uh, you should count frozen embryos as human beings. But you'll, you'll see there's something very interesting about the way he makes his argument and the way that he deals with criticisms of it. So let's take a look. It is our opinion that the effort to classify these extrauterine embryo as persons under the wrongful death statute should be rejected. Mr. Remind Green, way back in 1916, an Alabama Court of Appeals quoted a medical association of Alabama publication and held that life begins at conception. Has the medical association changed its definition of when life begins? No, but I think this method of creating life has been a change since 1916. It has been going on for some 40 years. We can talk about conception, but, but you have yourself made this point. I think it's a very good one. There could be no abortion when there's no pregnancy. And an extrauterine embryo is not a pregnancy. It doesn't become one until implanted, and it doesn't even become one then until a placenta is formed, and then life starts evolving. And, and it's inherent in the process, Justice Parker, that they're going to be excessive uh, embryo mm -hmm. because to protect the mother and put her on, through only one uh, procedure to harvest her eggs, she has to be under anesthesia, conscious sedation, or general anesthesia. To protect her, we harvest as many eggs as possible. We create more embryo that are ever going to be needed. So inherent in the process are going to be excessive embryo. And in this process, all participants have known from the beginning that these embryo are not going to be treated as human beings or persons, the two terms I've been hearing all day today, because they enter an agreement. And they say when there are excessive embryos, they can be transferred, they can be donated for medical research, they can be discarded. That is not the treatment of a they person. They can be donated to other families as well. It, it, yes, donated to other families, correct, hoping to create another pregnancy. So that is not the treatment of a person. I think that is the real crux here. Before implantation, the embryos have a value. There's no doubt about that. I'm not here to address that question, Justice Cook. I think you've posed a good one. But prior to implantation, prior to pregnancy, we don't have a human being. We don't have a beating heart. We don't have any form of a human being. We have an embryo. It's a cellular structure. 
Well, the, one of the contracts refers to them as human embryos. They are human embryos, but they're not human beings. They're not persons. They don't have a beating heart. They don't have limbs. They don't have eyes, ears, and noses. So, so they, they begin the process. What are they, Mr. Kane? What are they? Yeah. They're embryo. They're embryo that are harvested to become implanted and hopefully begin a pregnancy. If the pregnancy takes, if the implantation works, then a pregnancy begins and a human being is formed. Listen to this language in the contract with the Fondies. At Clerk's Record 69, page 11, uses the phrase death of the embryo as one of the risks associated with assisted reproductive technology. What is the opposite of death? It's life. So they must be alive to die according to the documents that they got our clients to sign. So that last uh, speaker was another attorney speaking on behalf of the plaintiffs answering the argument made by that first attorney. And there's several interesting things to note about this exchange. One is notice how at the end, the, the second attorney pretty swiftly dismantles the previous argument by saying, whatever you say about why you don't think these frozen embryos uh, yet count as human beings, it seems like you're still conceding that they can die if that language is in the contracts that the that the uh, customers are signing. Um, and of course, that's true. There's, a, there's an important sense in which that's true, that an embryo has a certain biological capacity that can be destroyed. Uh, nobody doubts that. The big question is, what is the life of an individual human being with rights? This is the distinction that anti-abortion advocates never want to talk about. Uh, because, of course, it's, there's a sense, that, as we said before, that human embryos are human in the sense they have human DNA. Does that make them an individual human being with rights? Now, the, the gentleman from the Alabama Medical Association who's arguing on behalf of the defendants is trying to draw a very fine line here. He's trying to walk the line of both maintaining that the... the em that the embryo or the fetus is a person with rights if it's not if it's been implanted but since frozen embryos have not been implanted they are not human beings so he's making the distinction between human beings and uh, human biological entities but the way he's drawing the distinction is so fine that it's really hard to see where his argument is going to go he's got to be able to say only implantation is what gives it moral significance and what gives it rights. And you'll notice he supercharges it a bit by saying uh, it's got to have a heartbeat and eyes and ears and nose. Mm -hmm. Well, right off the bat there, then no longer does it count as human from conception because there's no heartbeat at conception. That's not until some months later. Uh, so the, it's a line that can't be drawn. It's, he's, it's a fence you can't sit, in, sit on. And that's because the fundamental logic of the anti-abortion position that allows that side to say that at conception, it's a person with rights. The only thing they need to say that is, well, it's got this genetic biochemical potential, but then that's also true of frozen embryos. Uh, and that's the sense in which that life can then be taken away from them if those frozen embryos are destroyed, because if they're dropped on the floor, they lose that potential and they die in just the same sense as a, an implanted embryo does, because the implanted embryo isn't alive uh, in the sense of having a heartbeat, eyes, ears, or nose, certainly not alive uh, in the sense that I think actually counts, which is 
being born as an independent agent capable of acting in a social context. One last thing, Augustina. Uh, this is not, this position that the court has adopted is not just, this is not a straw man. This is not just an idiosyncratic view. This is to, just to illustrate that this is illustrating the core logic of the anti-abortion movement. Let's put up on screen here a, a tweet, and this is the, the person that I always go to to check what is the kind of standard Catholic anti-abortion perspective on any given controversy of the day this is Alexandra DeSanctis, who's a staff writer for the National Review. She's a Catholic. She's mm -hmm. written about the anti-abortion position. And here's what she says uh, about this decision. A recognition that has been a long time coming. Remember that attempts to depersonalize subclasses of human beings have always been used by those who wish to justify grave injustice. So I suppose that if we didn't pass a law or if we didn't uh, render a court decision protecting the rights of frozen embryos, we would be depersonalizing subclasses of human beings in order to commit an injustice. Try to wrap your head around that and think about what it would take to believe that view seriously. And you will step into the mind of the religious conservative opposition to abortion. Uh, yeah, to be honest, what I've seen uh, in the debate over this is a lot of conservatives kind of like trying to bend over backwards to make this make sense. What I've seen is that like they've committed to this position, this anti-abortion position, and now they see this very real consequence that is absurd. And now they're like, well, I need to double down somehow, like I like, even though it doesn't seem to really make sense, but there are people conservatives or Republicans that are divided over this ruling, that uh, this has caused, because of the absurdity of it and th this logic being taken to, 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 the, to its consequence, people are divided. So I've been seeing uh, Republicans like Nikki Haley say that embryos are, quote, babies, but then are asking the Alabama legislature to carve out an exception on the wrongful death law to exclude embryos uh, in vitro. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump, for instance, who takes credit for Dobbs and has been using it as uh, kind of like taking credit for uh, ending uh, the protection of abortion rights at the federal level, is saying that, uh, you know, he wants hands off IVF. He's like, okay, no, no, IVF should not be disturbed. People should be able to access IVF, no problem. So. This is a very divisive issue, even among conservatives and Republicans. So the question is, should Alabama legislators carve out this exception for in vitro embryos? And if so, would this actually be consistent with the state's broader policy on reproductive rights and the logic that of the anti-abortionists more, more broadly? Well, I think that if the legislature dealt with this in the way that some of these Republicans want them to, it would be better than nothing. I mean, it would at least allow uh, parents who are trying to have children to, to use IVF uh, with, with some uh, stability and security. Uh, but obviously that's only better than nothing. It's not better than a, an actual policy that would actually uh, protect individual liberty in the state, which would be one that would allow abortion on the same grounds. And it's important to mention that it's on the same grounds because when and if the Alabama legislature or any other state legislatures where these kinds of books are on the laws, uh, laws are on the book, when and if they pass these kinds of uh, carve outs, and I think that some of them will, 
it's not being done on any kind of principled basis. And for the reasons that we've been discussing, that is that the actual logic behind any of these anti-abortion positions really does entail uh, that the frozen embryos deserve the same kind of quote unquote rights. Uh, and I think this is this kind of inconsistency and this lack of a principled stand on this issue is something that you see uh, all over the conservative Republican sphere on this issue. That is, people have, and we talked a couple of weeks ago about the, the tribalism that's involved in the anti-abortion movement. And many of them, unlike uh, Ms. DeSanctis, don't think of it on a principled basis. They think they're motivated by this issue because they've been whipped into a tribal fervor about it. And when they then you know, pass laws that are inconsistent with the principles at stake, that's your evidence that they're really just approaching this from a tribal perspective. Uh, and you see this on all kinds of other debates about abortion, like exceptions for rape, exceptions for incest, exceptions for the life of the mother. For the most part, there's no sensible principled way to draw out those exceptions either. And the most consistent anti-abortion people like DeSanctis, uh, with a few exceptions, will say that you can't have these carve-outs for any of those kinds of issues. And, and then when they do think that there's a possible carve-out, they invoke really nonsensical rationalizations like the Catholic principle of double effect. We won't go into that. Um, to underscore the fact that this would be an unprincipled ex uh, kind of exception, it's worth noting there was a concurrence written in this decision uh, by the chief justice, uh, in addition to the majority opinion, where he basically argues that, especially because the whole decision was made on the basis of this uh, recent Alabama Constitution from 2022, Section 36.06, which speaks of the sanctity of life. He says, since that was part of the grounds for the decision in the first place, since there's some possible ambiguity in that 1872 statute, well, then that same constitutional provision, even if the legislature did decide to have a carve out, that constitutional provision would render it unconstitutional. Uh, and he thinks that if, if this case revisited the court, the court would have to strike down uh, that kind of provision. Now, maybe the court will come up with some rationalization around that, but this is at least what the chief justice says. Uh, and it's because he says any IVF involving freezing multiple embryos involves risks to the death of these little people. What he actually argues for is not that the legislature should carve out uh, an exception for IVF that would uh, allow the current uh, system to flourish. He wants to further restrict it. He thinks that uh, IVF should be regulated more uh, like it is in New Zealand right now, where you're only allowed to transfer one embryo at a time so that there's no risk of these extra embryos uh, being, being destroyed, which would be, of course, an enormous burden on the women uh, undergoing this procedure because you have to undergo uh, basically a kind of uh, surgery or you're, you're put under general anesthesia. Uh, if you had to do that for each and every egg that you harvested, it would be an ordeal that would be unspeakable. Yes, so uh, let's delve a little bit. You brought up uh, Chief Justice Parker's uh, concurrence. So let's delve a little bit deeper into that. So I read his concurrence and it, it contains a lot of religious arguments in favor of, quote, the sanctity of the unborn life, right? 
And he argues that all human beings, quote, bear God's image from the moment of conception. Um, and frankly, when I was reading um, this concurrence, I wasn't sure if I was reading a book on theology, an article on theology, of, uh, or a decision from, you know, a, a, an American court of law. So he quotes from the Bible and Aquinas to argue that man's life is sacred from conception because it's created on, in God's image. And that that's why there's a prohibition to take human life. So how is this religious view present in Alabama's law? And what else does uh, Justice Parker draw uh, from for his conclusion? Yeah, and it's worth underscoring that this is not just a concurrence from a random justice on the bench. This is the concurrence written by the chief justice. Uh, and both, uh, both his decision, both the majority decision and the concurrence, they make reference to this 2022 state constitution language about the sanctity of unborn life, the rights of unborn children, which I mentioned before. Incidentally, sidebar, why does Alabama have a 2022 constitution, you might wonder? Why so recent? It's been a state for many decades or centuries. Well, because they only recently got rid of their 1901 constitution, which was the one that allowed for racial segregation under the Jim Crow laws. So I'm glad they finally got around to updating that part. Uh, but Parker, the chief justice, he's a textualist and an originalist when it comes to interpreting laws, whether the constitution, uh, state or federal, or that 1872 statute. Um, but his argument, of course, and the argument of the majority is that you have to interpret the 1872 statute in light of this more recent constitution. And originalism says, if you want to understand the meaning of the words in a law, you look to the context of the time in which it was adopted. And he says, well, this law about the sanctity of life is adopted in 2022, Alabama. Alabama in 2022 is religious and conservative. And when you look up uh, the word sanctity in contemporary dictionaries, it says holiness. Holiness is a religious idea. We know that Alabama is religious. And so that's why he then goes on to cite as the basis for the decision, the book of Genesis, uh, the Ten Commandments in Exodus, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, among other kinds of religious authorities. Uh, so there's, a there's an issue of judicial interpretation here. The philosophy of judicial interpretation is originalism. This law originated in 2022 in religious conservative Alabama. So you have to interpret it in light of the meaning of the people of Alabama in this period, which is in fact religious. He says, the people of Alabama have declared the public policy of this state to be that unborn human life is sacred. We believe that each human being from the moment of conception is made in the image of God, created by him to reflect his likeness. It is as if the people of Alabama took what was spoken of the prophet Jeremiah and applied it to every unborn person in this state. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. Jeremiah 1.5. Okay, so um, this sounds an awful lot like the establishment of religion, frankly, from, from the Alabama Constitution to this decision to the practical application of, of these principles uh, that Justice Parker is explaining uh, in the particular case, uh, the, the, to this particular case dealing with IVF. Is that so, Ben? Is this like the establishment of religion? I don't see a way to explain why it isn't. 
I think it's a flagrant violation of church-state separation of the First Amendment's uh, anti-establishment of religion clause. It's, it's worth noting that Justice Parker is a close associate of uh, Roy Moore in Alabama. If you remember, he's the one who wanted to put the Ten Commandments uh, on the grounds of the Alabama State Capitol. So it's no surprise here. Uh, but something that's worth underscoring here is where this particular church-state infraction is coming from in his reasoning. It's coming from that judicial philosophy of originalism, which usually talks about the original meaning of a statute that was written a long time ago. This is the way they often interpret the federal constitution. But it's a fully general theory that says whenever the law is adopted, you have to look at the social context of the meaning of the words from that time. And he's doing that now. And what I think that really helps to bring out is why this originalist view is really just a rationalization for unlimited majority rule. You don't usually, does, this doesn't usually make sense when you're talking about uh, interp interpreting older laws from an originalist perspective, because you're, 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 you're invoking an interpretation about something that was established in the past that doesn't have any bearing on what people think today. But if you think about it, what they're basically saying is that the majority of the past should be able to rule. And well, when the country changes its laws to reflect the current majority opinion, uh, then that just brings it up to date and brings out it, this originalist idea really is just a sanctioning of uh, democratic majority rule, which I think is interesting because recently there's been a big hubbub on social media uh, among conservatives claiming we live in a constitutional republic, not in a democracy, as many Democrats, of course, say. Well, uh, they should think about that when they think about using these kinds of originalist interpretations of the laws. If you're simply saying we're going to interpret them according to whatever the majority of people think, that's the same problem. Delving uh, further into this decision, so there is one dissent uh, by Justice Greg Cook. What does he argue in his dissent? And is it any better than his colleagues' arguments? Yeah, so just like all of the parties in this case, uh, Greg Cook also doesn't want to challenge the basic premise uh, that unborn embryos can count as individual human beings. But he does want to challenge the idea that frozen embryos uh, get counted under that heading. So he makes a kind of legalistic argument for why we have reason to think they're not governed by that 1872 wrongful death of a minor statute, basically conceding many of the arguments of the defendant. And what's interesting here is, is that he also is an originalist. He thinks you have to interpret the, the text of the law according to the context of the day. And he argues that in 1872, nobody knew about in vitro fertilization. They didn't know about even the possibility of, an, of frozen embryos. And so his idea is they couldn't have meant that. Uh, and that's a standard kind of originalist argument. But what's interesting is that it doesn't work if you take that updated 2022 constitution into account, because as I said before, the originalists will say, whenever the law is adopted, you have to look at that context. And of course, in 2022, Alabamans did know about IVF. They did know about in vitro fertilization. And so there's a question, well, why then wouldn't that count? And he, he does go on to make, I think, some halfway decent points about how, well, 
at one point in time in, in the uh, 1970s, the state legislature did change their criminal code to include in utero uh, cases as subject to uh, uh, when, when they're killed as subject to prosecution. And they knew about this in the 70s. Why couldn't they update it to also mention in vitro? Uh, and they note that the court then subsequently interpreted civil law in light of what the criminal statutes say. But that's really just a kind of legal nicety and one that even depends on some dubious assumptions because the language in that 1972 law says including uh, in utero, but it doesn't exclude anything else. It doesn't say that's the only example. Uh, and so that even if that legal nicety had logic to it, I really don't think it would have the power to work against what's what's real moral fervor on the side of protecting every embryo everywhere, regardless of its circumstances, simply because of its biochemistry, because that is what motivates uh, the anti-abortion uh, position. I do think that what this shows is that the typical conservative opposition to so-called judicial activism is, is, is a bit of a fig leaf, uh, because what Cook argues is that since there is ambiguity in the 1872 statute and since it's and since the, that statute was never actually changed by the legislature when it could have been that this is in effect a kind of judicial activism that the courts are interpreting the legislature in a way that actually changes the original meaning of the law uh usually conservatives are outraged about judicial activism but it seems here not when it's in favor of the position that they that they favor um one last thing that I think is interesting about the, that uh, Cook's dissent is that it, it brings out uh, something that is, I guess, at best inconsistent in the way that conservative originalism works. Usually, originalists will argue uh, that you can only interpret abstract legal concepts in a very concrete bound way. So, for example, uh, the argument in Dobbs versus Jackson was that you can't say there was a right to liberty that was included, sorry, you can't say there was a right to abortion included in the original federal constitution because well, it doesn't say abortion. It just says liberty and liberty is so abstract. How can you argue that it implies liberty to do all these different things that the founders never conceived of? Okay, but then when it comes to interpreting the 1872 Alabama law, which says that children will be protected uh, by the law. It does imagine that that can include and reach 200 years into the future and include frozen embryos that were never imagined. So uh, there's, there's no clear logic here. And I think what it really shows is that what's driving it isn't even necessarily a coherent philosophy of judicial interpretation, that that's part of it. What's really driving it is this current majority view in Alabama, uh, principles be damned. And uh, that view is this religious ideology. Uh, the last thing I want to discuss, Ben, is, so we've been seeing the consequences of, of Dobbs for a while now, uh, in terms of access to the right to an abortion in many states. And now these, um, this battle against reproductive rights is being taken to IVF, and this decision uh, will likely make IVF, IVF inaccessible for many people, and we've been seeing clinics already starting to close down. 
So the question is, what does the future hold for reproductive rights in these states? And also in America more broadly? Yeah. I mean, I think that this is, especially when you see people like Donald Trump and Nikki Haley coming out uh, against this decision, not on any kind of legal or philosophical principles, but because it's obviously unpopular, because they know that they've claimed to be pro-family and what could be more anti-family than making it impossible for willing parents to reproduce. I think they're looking at the way the wind is blowing. And so they're going to support some of these legislative solutions. And I think it's very likely that those legislative solutions will pass in many states where there are anti-abortion laws in the books. Now, it's an interesting question. What happens uh, when those laws are challenged by certain anti-abortion groups? And I'm sure that they will be. Uh, what happens when they then get taken back to the Supreme Court? Will um, the Justice Parkers of the world, like in Alabama, cite the language that's in the Alabama Constitution to say, no, even this legislative solution is unconstitutional? I don't know what will happen then, but I think that in the beginning, at least, you will get legislative solutions. You'll get you know these partial exemptions and partial exceptions, and they won't be principled. Uh, and you will, and any other time. Um, there's a logical implication of any of these laws or these anti-abortion premises that is a bridge too far in effect. You'll get opposition from special interest groups who will push the legislature to get a carve out. Uh, and that's the way that it generally works with non-objective law. When there's non-objective law that sacrifices one person to another in the name of some floating abstraction, whether it's the common good uh, or whether it's, in this case, the, the rights of the embryo. Uh, it's never actually a common good. It's never actually any actual rights being protected. It's some form of sacrifice of one individual to another. And as a result, then, the, the sacrificed parties have to band together into interest groups. And what you get then is pressure group warfare. And I think something like that will happen on the state level with regard to these, with regard to these uh, anti-abortion laws. And it, it, won't be, it won't be pretty. It will be, um, you know, as they speak of, this is how the sausage gets made in backroom deals uh, in state legislatures. And if you happen to be loud enough and vocal enough, maybe you'll get your special exception. Um, but meanwhile, other people who don't have that kind of representation will get, uh, will get violated. Well, that's, um, that's very unfortunate, but that's part of the reason why at ARI we've been fighting for the right to an abortion for so long. Uh, we need to, we're making efforts to influence the right people to make the right freedom uh, consistent decisions, which is, you know, to respect the right to an abortion is the only way to be consistent with the respect of individual rights. So some resources um, for our audience who, uh, if they want to look further into this topic today, um, we have the Ayn Rand lexicon entry on abortion, where you can get some of Rand's uh, perspective on this topic. And then part of what of the many things that we're doing at ARI is, then you have this book called Why the Right to Abortion is Sacrosanct, a book of uh, essays on the issue of abortion. And I'd like to especially recommend the essay, Science Without Philosophy Can't Resolve the Abortion Debate. 
Augustina, so, before we before we do anything else, I think there there are a few questions that have come up in the chat that we should yes we should take a look at. We have a little in, time. Yeah, this just came in. So let's do so. First of all, thanks everyone for their for your super chat questions. Um, and some people have contributed without asking a question. So thank you as usual for that. So we have a question here. The justices, the justices, sorry, have an issue with human embryo death. Do they have an issue with the human body's programmed cell death? Do they prefer cancer? I think this is a good question because it's what it, I mean, it's a rhetorical question, but what it brings out is that the, I think the anti-abortion position is, is motivated by a kind of religious worldview. And the broader religious idea is you should not play God. And in fact, in the past, their religious uh, morality has often been interpreted to mean if, if God wills that you die from cancer, you shouldn't intervene. You shouldn't play God. You should accept the fate that you've been given by the hand of God. And so this is what leads uh, uh, certain religious groups to not seek medical treatment, even in contemporary society, mm -hmm. because that is what they interpret as, as the will of God. And for similar reasons, there's been religious opposition to anesthesia, for instance, up until the 18th century, um, late 18th, late, or sorry, the 19th century. Um, I think the same thing happens in abortion. If, if God wills that you be pregnant, uh, then that is the fate that you should accept. There's, Augustine, there's also a, a few questions that came in below on the sheet that you're looking at that I think are worth looking at. Some of them are fundamental questions. And one that I want to answer at least before we finish is, how is the concept of rights rooted in the fabric of reality? Uh, and that's an excellent question because it's, it's the fundamental question in this whole debate. What is the basis of rights? And I alluded to it at, at least in part in some of the things I said earlier, um, but it's worth, it's worth uh, re-emphasizing that, that according to objectivism, uh, individual rights is, is a concept that comes from political philosophy. Political philosophy is the discipline that's concerned with determining how should we structure our society to make it a good and just society, to allow for the possibility of achieving virtuous goals and ends. And uh, it always has a view, not only of what's bad about, what's bad about living in society, but what's good about living in society. What do we want to accomplish by living in society? Objectivism's view is that the end of life is happiness, that, the, that it's the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of rational self-interest, uh, the pursuit of human life is, is the goal of ethics. And the purpose of political philosophy is to figure out what is, what enables that to be pursued, what enables that to be achieved. And human beings live in a certain way. They live by thinking and production. They live by the use of their minds in the pursuit of their values. The major thing that stops them from being able to do that is force, is physical force used by other people when you're living in a society. When someone can interfere with your life, you've got some project you're planning and they come along and take it or stop you from engaging in it. That's the thing that rights are for. Rights are there to carve out a sphere of protection for you to be able to engage in uh, thoughtful, productive action. That's the primary reason we need rights. The paradigm case of a rights bearer, the paradigm case, 
is a mature individual adult who's engaged in productive projects and we're trying to protect them. Um, that's where the initial data for the concept of rights comes from in the first place. Now you can extend that concept to protect a broader sphere of action than just the action of a grown-up. Obviously, life is something that has to be lived in the long range. Human beings live by thinking and planning. Uh, and so you have to be able to allow them to act over the course of a lifetime. And that means that you can extend the protection of rights back to children, all the way, I think, to newborns. Uh, but what you can't do is extend it so far that it includes fetuses and embryos, which are physically attached to individual adult human beings. Remember, individual adult human beings, they're the paradigm case of, of a rights bearer, of someone who's protected by rights. So if you get to the point where by granting rights to something else, you actually impinge upon the paradigm rights bearer, which is in this case, the woman, that's when you know you've gone too far. And that's why Ayn Rand thought that rights begin at birth. And there's many places in her writings and her speeches where she says exactly that. Um, okay, Ben, I, is there any other question in the list that you would like to answer? Um, um, I, th I think we I should... Think that, I think that covers it. But thank you for, okay. for everyone who asked questions and who, uh, who contributed to the Super Chat. And this is the first podcast we've done on abortion for a while, so I expected there to be a bunch of questions. But it's something that, as you, as you mentioned, Augustina, we've had a lot to say about those resources uh, it's, are worth checking out. Uh, I wrote a book on the subject, and so I hope that people consult them to get a, a better picture of, of the objectivist position on this issue and Ayn Rand's view on this issue. Yes, and please feel free to send us uh, your questions for future Q&A episodes to experts at iran.org. We have episodes exclusively dedicated to Q&A and we can answer, we may answer some of your questions there. And as usual, if you um, enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube and uh, whatever else you get your uh, podcasts. And please also share with friends if you think, if you found value in this discussion. Um, so if you have even more questions or comments about today's episode, or you have a suggestion for a future episode, please send us an email at newideal at einrand.org. Uh, we read uh, all of your emails and we reply to many of them. So again, thanks to, to everyone for watching. Thanks for the super chats. Thank you, Ben, that was a helpful discussion and see you all next week. Thanks, Augustine. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.